Good evening. This evening we continue in our series of studies in the book of Esther. You can turn with me to Esther chapter 3. And as we've been going through this study the last couple of weeks, we've seen that God is very much in control. Is God in control? Amen. He is. Even though the name of God doesn't show up once in this book, it doesn't have to. Because God is in every moment and in every aspect of this account. When we get to chapter 3, it might be tempting to think that somehow God is not in control. Because when we get to chapter 3, we're going to be introduced to the bad guy. There's always a bad guy. And Haman, yes, boo, Haman is the bad guy. He's the one that is about to devise a plot to destroy the Jews. Not the first person in history, not the last person in history, who set as their ambition to destroy the entire group of people we call the Jews. Now, as we get to this chapter, you can see the stage being set for a conflict. And I think it's important to recognize that there are spiritual forces of darkness. There's lots of darkness in this world. And when the darkness rises, we have a tendency to think, oh, there's God. He lost control again. But many times, and I've seen this over and over again, God will allow our enemies, the enemies of what is right and good, the enemies of God and his word, he'll give them that rope just enough to literally hang themselves. And we'll see that in this account that many times God allows our enemies to appear to get the upper hand. But in the end, it's their undoing. So it it takes faith to trust God through times of trial and difficulty to recognize that even though it seems dark, God's in control. In fact, it's harder to trust God at those moments, but it's so rewarding when we see that God really was in control all along. With that, let's open in a word of prayer and get into our study this evening. Lord, Heavenly Father, as always, we look to you and we thank you for showing us through your word that you can be trusted, that there's nothing happening in the world or in our lives or in our families or in this church that isn't completely within your control. We understand and know that you are on the throne, that you are able to do all things and work through what appears to be the enemy getting the upper hand, because you're just setting the stage for his undoing, for your victory, for the redemption of this world. As we study your word this evening, speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, let's read. We'll read verses 1 through 6 in chapter 3 of the book of Esther. After these events, that's the events of chapter 2, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All uh, All the other nobles, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel. He would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Well, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of only killing Mordecai. 
Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. That is the Persian Empire. And at first glance, it looks like this guy's insane. I don't doubt that he was demonically inspired, but we're going to unpack it this evening to see that more was at work here than you might imagine, more than you could possibly understand unless you were very familiar with the Old Covenant. Because there's a lot going on here that goes back hundreds of years, thousands of years really, between the groups of people that these individuals are descended from. Let's start by looking at verse 1. It starts with Xerxes, the king, the emperor, really, of Persia, elevating Haman, the Agagite, above everyone else. And he does this in the 12th year of his reign. This is about 474 B.C. Now, Haman was elevated about five years after Esther had become queen in 479 B.C. So the events of chapter 2 were about five years earlier. Now, Haman was an Agagite, and that means very little to us unless you're familiar with the scriptures. Because an Agagite would mean that he was a prince of the Amalekites, a group of people we hear a lot about in the Old Testament scriptures. Agag, from where we get Agagite from, means he was descended from a man named Agag. Agag was a king of Amalek during the time of Saul, king of Israel. Agag. And Amalek was the grandson of Esau, who, of course, was the twin brother of Jacob, also called Israel. So these peoples are somewhat closely related, but yet spiritually they couldn't be any more different. So you have Amalek, the grandson of Esau. So in a sense, Agag was a descendant of Esau, and and really all of the Amalekites, and certainly Haman, but many, many generations later. But in the scriptures, these individuals and these groups of people are symbolic. They're symbolic types, and they symbolize aspects of our spiritual walk. In fact, I'm not the one to come up with this. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Esau is a type of the flesh. That is our carnal nature, our fleshly sinful nature. Esau represents the sinful nature. He was a very fleshly man. And of course, Jacob, although not perfect, is a type of the spirit, the spirit within us, not the Holy Spirit, the spirit within us, the flesh and the spirit. They war against one another. In fact, in Genesis 25, when Jacob and Esau, who were twins, were in the womb, were told they struggled together. And that becomes the beautiful type of the struggling of the flesh and the spirit. And it's interesting because who was born first? Esau. And in our lives, spiritually, the natural precedes the spiritual. And so the birth order even has a type there. In fact, it's Paul who brings this out in 1 Corinthians 15. First Esau is born, and he's supposed to receive the birthright. He's supposed to be the heir. And then you have Jacob, who's a type of the spirit. Again, the natural precedes the spiritual. The older Esau was meant to serve the younger, though. And that we know from Genesis 25. So even though he was older, God had already ordained that Esau would serve Jacob. Now, this principle of the firstborn being set aside for the secondborn is a common biblical theme. It's not the only time. It's not the first time. It happens frequently. And I think there's a principle there as well, because really the way it should work with Christians, our old nature, which is older than our new nature, should serve our new nature. That is, 
the flesh should serve the spirit. Now, of course, the war that goes on between our flesh and our spirit, we're well acquainted with. Paul talks a lot about this in the book of Romans. But if you think about it in the scriptures, you had Cain, he was the oldest, but in the end, Abel, who was murdered and then taken over by Seth. Seth, the next brother uh, that was mentioned, Seth really is the one that God works through. So even though Cain was the oldest, he set aside. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the eldest son of Abram. And even though he was the eldest, he would serve the younger, Isaac, who was God's son of promise. Manasseh and Ephraim were the twins uh, who, were, who were born to, or excuse me, they were, they were the children that were born to, uh, to, to Joseph. And these two children that were born, Manasseh was the oldest, Ephraim was the youngest. In the end, Manasseh served Ephraim, the older served the younger. And then, of course, we have the 12 sons of Jacob. You have Reuben, who was the eldest. He ends up serving one of the younger sons, Joseph. So this happens over and over again. And even that's a message. It's a symbol. Our old nature, which is much older for many of us than our spiritual nature, needs to submit and serve our spirit. And that is the war we fight with the flesh. Esau is a type of the flesh. Okay, but uh, the Amalekites were descended from, as I said, the grandson of Esau. That's Amalek. Now, Amalek is also a type of the flesh, but specifically the flesh warring against the spirit. And we see this throughout the scriptures as well. The Amalekites lived in the desert of southern Israel, and they were Israel's first and most persistent enemy, as the flesh often is. The Lord had declared in the book of Exodus in chapter 17, he had declared destruction upon Amalek and his descendants and an unending war for generations. That is, God said, you will be at war with Amalek for generations. And Amalek had been victorious against Israel when they disobeyed God in the wilderness back in the book of Numbers. They were a real thorn in the flesh of the Israelites. They were, they were true enemies of Israel. And they always looked to try to destroy Israel from the very beginning. Maybe it was jealousy. Who knows what it was? But as God said, there would be an unending war for generations. And that was true. But the Lord had commanded Israel to destroy Amalek, as we're called to put down our flesh and destroy the flesh. So that needed to be done. In the history of Israel, in the Old Testament, Amalek, the Amalekites, oppressed Israel in the promised land when they became tolerant and complacent of sin. And and God actually allowed the Amalekites to inflict harm upon the Israelites when they were in disobedience toward God. But it's not even God allowing it. When you give yourself over to sin and the flesh, the flesh wars against you and destroys you. A lot of people blame God for their troubles. It's really not God's fault. God tells you what to do. You disobey God, and guess what happens? Your flesh gets the better of you. It wars against you. It destroys you. And that type and symbol is, is prevalent throughout the scriptures. I'll give you a couple of examples. During the time of the judges, especially during the time of Ehud in Judges 3, during the time of Deborah and Barak in Judges 5, during the time of Gideon in Judges 6 and 7, during the time of Saul 
in 1 Samuel 14, and during the time of David in 1 Samuel 27 and 30, and even during the time of Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles 4, the Amalekites caused problems for the Israelites. So you see, it was true. There would be an unending war. So, the Lord had commanded Saul to completely destroy this group of people. Wipe them out. Some people look at this, skeptics look at this, and they say, well, what kind of God would say destroy a whole group of people? Well, let me just tell you a few things about them before you think that way. The way that they would inflict harm on the Israelites in the wilderness is they would hide, and they'd allow the Israelites to go past. And then the women and the children and the weak and those that couldn't move as quickly were attacked when they were further away from the main group of the Israelites. They would take these people, the women and the children and the weak, and they would use them as slaves and sell them into slavery. They were human traffickers. And they were involved in awful things. They were really terrorists. So when God says, wipe them out, if I said to you, you know, uh, go wipe out every last member of Al-Qaeda, you'd be like, let's get it done. Of course you would. If you, if you said that about the, the people in the gangs in El Salvador, you know, MS-13 or Calle 18 or whatever, it, it, you would probably say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because these people really behave like animals. Yes, they're people, but they act like animals. And when we see that, it's easy to say, okay, yeah, I get it. Wipe them out. Did anybody cry for the Nazis in Germany, you know, when they were defeated in World War II? No, of course not. You look at people who behave in this way and you think to yourself, what is the solution? Well, that's the solution. And God told them, get rid of these people. These people need to be destroyed. What would you do with a rabid dog? You'd put it down. Now, when you look at it that way, it doesn't seem like God is so unloving. It seems like he's actually quite loving. And it's hard for us to understand that because we don't tend to think that way unless you change the context. But Saul had been commanded to do this. And because he was greedy, he chose not to obey God. In fact, he was rejected by God as Israel's king for disobeying his command. Now, why would he do that? They were his enemies. Well, one of the reasons he left Agag, the king, alive, and his sons, clearly, because they were descendants, is because you could, you could ransom them. So if you took the king and his sons into custody, uh, they would purchase their way out and you would get rich. And, and he said, destroy all of their cattle, destroy, destroy all of their animals. And Saul's thinking, well, why would I do that? I can sell them. So because of greed, he chose not to obey God. And so God rejected him. In fact, we see him in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. He's there and Agag is still alive, and Samuel shows up. Now, I like Samuel. Samuel's my kind of guy. He kind of shows up. He asks Saul, did you do what God said? And basically, Saul says, yeah, 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 we, we did. He goes, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? You know, you didn't destroy the animals. And Agag's still alive. Now, Samuel grabs a sword and chops his head off. I like, I like this guy. I'm just going to be honest. He just deals with it. God said, do it, do it. But Haman's existence as a human being shows that Saul disobeyed God because clearly some of the descendants of Agag got away. Agag didn't, but his descendants did. So Haman, think about this, think about this. Haman would have never existed had Saul obeyed God's command. Interesting thought. 
Maybe we should obey God when he tells us, well, it doesn't make sense. This doesn't make Yeah, yeah. Okay, now it's a problem. It could have been dealt with. You didn't deal with it. You didn't obey God. Now you have a problem on your hands. That's why it's always best to obey God. Now, I'd be very surprised in today's world if God commanded you to, you know, go kill a bunch of people. In fact, I don't recommend you do that. And I would say that he's probably not going to command you to do that. I mean, we can talk about, you know, battling terrorists, you know, on on the battlefield. But in general, that's not the kind of commands I I think we're going to receive today. But there are things in our life, specifically and especially fleshly things, that the flesh likes and enjoys that we're called to put down, to destroy. And if we don't, we can, we can pretty much count on they're going to come back to haunt us at some point in our lives. We're going to have to reap the consequences of disobedience if we don't obey God today. So that's the principle here. That's the lesson behind the story or the account. But as we continue here, Saul was later rebuked. Interesting situation. He goes to a, um, a necromancer, someone who speaks to the dead, right? And uh, it's kind of odd because she's a witch in the place of Endor. And you wouldn't have expected this to happen. But for God's purposes, uh, Samuel's spirit appears and speaks to Saul and rebukes him and sentences him to death for his rebellion. And sure enough, the next day he dies. In fact, Saul, believe it or not, was ultimately put to death by an Amalekite. So if you read the account in 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1, it seems that he was wounded and he wasn't going to make it, so he fell on his sword, but that uh, the Amalekite reports this to David, and of course he was involved in Saul's death. So kind of what you might call poetic justice or irony, he really should have listened to God, but he didn't, and it ultimately cost him his life. Now, Haman was an Amalekite. He was one of Israel's greatest enemies throughout their history. Let's flip it around, though. Think about it from his perspective. Now, we've looked at it from the perspective of the descendants of Israel. How would you feel if you were an Amalekite? Oh, maybe you're wicked, and clearly Haman is wicked. If you were an Agagite, how would you feel about the Jews, knowing that they were commanded to destroy you as a people, knowing that many of them did, uh, knowing that your ancestor was decapitated, you know, by Samuel the prophet, knowing that their goal and even their scriptures commanded them to completely destroy them as a people, you can imagine that Haman, as an Agagite, as an Amalekite, had no love for the Jews. And it begins to make sense why he was so extreme. He wasn't just reacting to one guy not wanting to bow to him because he was an egomaniac, although he was. He was responding to their entire history as a people and the animosity between these groups of people. So when, G, when, when God said in Genesis that there would be a war for unending generations, an unending war for generations, he meant it. And here we are with the enemies of God and his people in power and God's people in danger. That's essentially what it comes down to. So Haman was given a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles in the Persian court. He's essentially the prime minister now. This is a problem. Xerxes had commanded that all the royal officials at the king's gate kneel down and honor Haman. And of course, we've already talked about how uh, Mordecai was apparently an official, a royal official at the king's gate. So he was clearly expected to bow. But I've already shared with you how the Jews felt about Amalekites. So that's just not going to happen. And uh, this becomes a problem. It's probably a matter of pride and ego as much as it is spiritual conviction. But in either case, this is what starts the problem. But the problem started a long time ago. 
This is just the problem coming to a head in the life of Mordecai and Haman. Xerxes had commanded this, and all the officials obeyed this command, but Mordecai would not honor Haman. I think he may have felt slighted, given the fact that he had not been honored for his uh, loyalty to the king some years before, which we studied last week. You remember uh, Mordecai had prevented an assassination attempt on King Xerxes, and it was reported to the king, but he was never rewarded, he was never acknowledged, and we'll see later on that even that was within God's control and God's will, because later that becomes a major point as to how God delivers the Jews. But see, sometimes we think, well, I didn't get what I deserved. I had, I, I had that coming to me. It didn't come to me. We think God has forgotten us. No. God may hit the pause button, and it may come up at a later time that's actually more beneficial to you and your family. As we'll see, that's what happens. So he may have felt slighted and said, I'm not bound to that guy. I should have his position. He may have believed that he was being discriminated against because he was a Jew. It often happened. It happens today. And he would have found it intolerable as a Jew to bow to an Agagite, a prince of Amalek. And we've already discussed why. So the officials, they pressured Mordecai to comply. They pressured him. What are you doing? You need to bow. You need to bow. I mean, these are like, you say in Spanish, intermentios, but in, in uh, budinskis, you might say, or uh, troublemakers, people that get involved where they don't belong. Uh, these guys, they decide to get involved where they don't belong. They start the problem because, you know, they, rather than Haman uh, finding out, they kind of tell Haman and they get Mordecai. They're, they're just starting trouble, basically. And they pressured Mordecai to comply, but Mordecai refused to obey the king's command on this point. So the officials in, informed Haman of Mordecai's unwillingness to honor him. That's all he needed to hear. See, they wanted to see if Mordecai's disobedience would be tolerated. They're testing the boundaries, as so often is the case. You ever notice when you tell one kid you can't have a cookie, right? You ever, you ever notice, you say, no, 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 you can't have a cookie, you can't have a cookie. And then they see another kid with a cookie, right? What happens? It's like a matter of justice at that point. But he got one, you know. Isn't it funny? Kids have a very heightened sense of justice when they're on the other end of it, you know. Uh, I think what happened here is that they're trying to see, well, how come he gets away with that? Why doesn't he have to bow? I have to bow. Why doesn't he have to bow? People are such troublemakers, right? I always say, mind your own business, right? Just mind your own business. Go through life a whole lot better than if you don't. But he had told them, that is, Mordecai had told these officials he was a Jew. And that explained to them his disobedience. And we've already discussed why that was. So just saying, look, I'm a Jew. I'm not bowing to him. Now you understand. So Haman, of course, was enraged by Mordecai's refusal to kneel down and honor him. So what did he do? Haman looked for a way to destroy Mordecai. Now, you understand that, but the next part only makes sense if you understand what we've already talked about, because he also wanted to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. You see, when Satan wants to destroy an entire group of people, there's a reason. There is a reason. And in fact, this is just one of the many satanically inspired plots to prevent the Messiah from being born. If you can destroy the Jews, you can, you can prevent God's will from being done on earth, right? Because Jesus was the Messiah born of the Jews, right? I mean, Saul <clears throat> nearly killed David several times with his spear. Had he killed David before he had children, would there have been a son of David? Who do you think was behind that? Well, we know he was possessed with an evil spirit. Why? 
to try to stop God's will from being accomplished through Jesus. There was another woman. She was a queen. She was married to a king of Judah. Her name was Athaliah. We talked about her in in 2 Kings, also in the Chronicles. Uh, She nearly exterminated the entire royal line. There's a grandmother going after her own grandkids. Does that make any sense? Well, if you're possessed by Satan, it does. You know, if you're, if, you, if you're demonically inspired. So much of what goes on today against the Jews as a people doesn't make any sense at all. Really, think about it. I want you to just stop a minute and think. Where's all the oil? Is it in Israel? No. Right? It's in all of the Arab countries surrounding Israel. Now, it, there, there is some Israel, uh, in Israel, there's some natural gas and, some, and, and oil. But let's be honest, all of the oil, all the money is in all these other nations surrounding Israel. Very small little area right there that the Jews are. Why is it that all of these extremely wealthy countries have a problem with Israel taking up this much space and there's really no natural resources per se? Why? What, does that make any sense? Well, no, but yes, because... You see, what Satan does is he inspires people to hate this group of people we call the Jews. They call themselves the Jews in Israel. Because if he can destroy Israel, he can thwart the plan of God. So it's satanically inspired. Anti-Semitism doesn't make any sense. It's satanically inspired. And Herod, think about Herod. He tried, but failed, to kill Jesus shortly after he had been born. A brutal man. What could have inspired that? Oh, he was paranoid, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. But the devil is behind this. What causes nations like Iran and, and other nations that, that really, or the Palestinians? I'm not saying the Jews are perfect people. I'm not saying they haven't caused some of these problems themselves. I'm saying this hatred is a little bit more than just a dispute. It's satanically inspired. Understand that. And so this is not the first or the last time, but when you see genocidal ambitions of a man like Haman, you understand the history, but also understand that it's Satan working behind the scenes to try to destroy the Jews and prevent the coming of Messiah at this point. So what does Haman do? We read in verses uh, 7, let's read verses 7 through 11. Here's what he does. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, in the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot, think of a die, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver in the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. In other words, he's willing to pay for it. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, and, and keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do it the people as you please. Now, I don't really think Xerxes understood what was going on here. He just trusted Haman. That was a mistake as we'll see. So he issues an edict to destroy the Jews throughout Persia. This happens again, 12th year of King Xerxes, 474 BC. He had the officials cast the poor, the lot, to randomly select a date. They believed that this would be good luck. 
to let it, if they selected it, you know, it wasn't as good as if they did it randomly. They believed the gods were involved. It's, it's kind of superstitious, but this is what they do. And this was shortly after Mordecai had refused to kneel down and honor him in the first month of Nisan. Now, the poor, the, the poor was probably a, a number of dice rolls, think Yahtzee, <laughs> uh, to randomly determine the best day for his plan. Fortunately, and I, and I do not believe that this was random, the lot fell on the 12th month of Adar, which was still 11 months away. I mean, it could have been the next week, right? And this gave the Jews time to cry out to the Lord through prayer and fasting, which they did. The scriptures say in the book of Proverbs, the lot is cast in the lap, but the, but the whole determination is of the Lord. The outcome is of the Lord. So even random occurrences are under God's control. Can you say Amen. Even what we consider to be flipping a coin or rolling the dice is under God's control. Nothing happens in this universe that may be random to us that is really truly random because God is in control. He's sovereign over all things. And that's awesome. And that gives me great comfort. But even this was under God's control. So Haman received Xerxes' approval to destroy an entire group of people. Did you notice he vaguely identified a certain people? He didn't say the Jews. A certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples of Persia. Kind of made it sound like it was just maybe a few people. He really didn't. He sort of obscured the truth. And he accused them of having different customs and not obeying the king's law. Now Xerxes, in fairness, didn't pursue this. But it doesn't sound like a lot of people, the way he describes it. And he suggested it was not in the king's best interests to tolerate them. So he proposed that the king issue a decree to destroy them, and he even offered to pay the expenses. By the way, 375 tons of silver. That's what he offered. Uh, it would have helped replenish the treasury and reduce the deficit. But he didn't, the king didn't even care about that. He, well, first of all, let's be honest. Where do you think Haman was going to get this money from? He intended to plunder the Jews in order to pay for this contribution. So he's going to put the money out, but he's probably going to get more back. So he's going to make money on the deal, and he's going to destroy a group of people. So what did he do? Well, Xerxes coldly signed a death sentence for all the Jews within his kingdom. Maybe he didn't realize, but he did. And he gave Haman full authority to issue his proposed decree, and even declined Haman's offer to pay for the expenses. So who knows? Whatever reason, Xerxes is blinded to the plans of Satan working through Haman. So in verses 12 through 15, we read, Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned, and they wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. And these were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by... Cur- <coughs> Excuse me... <coughs> Couriers to all the king's provinces uh, with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Now, spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out 
And the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. That's the capital where uh, Esther was and Xerxes and also Mordecai and Haman. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Nobody could understand this. That's why I think Haman probably obscured a lot of this from Xerxes. He's hoping to destroy them without bringing too much attention to his edict, that is, at the court. He publishes this edict to destroy the Jews on the 13th of the first month of Nisan. Now, he had the royal secretaries write out his orders in every language so that everyone could read it, and he sent his edict out to all the officials and nobles in Persia, and he did it in the name of the king, and the king gave him his ring, so he had that authority. But I find this interesting. He used couriers, we're told. He used couriers. We know what couriers are. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't see the UPS truck, the FedEx truck, and the Amazon Prime van go up and down my street several times. And then, of course, the Postal Service. I live in a sort of relaxed neighborhood. It's, you know, not a well-traveled road, but I can't tell you how many times I look outside and see couriers. But it's interesting because he used couriers to rapidly deliver his dispatches to all the king's provinces. It always amazes me how I order something on Amazon and the next day it shows up, you know? And I love to track it, and I'm like, that came from Illinois? How did it get here so fast? But I want you to know that Persia was renowned for their ever-efficient courier service. In fact, the inscription on the New York City post office, which I think is no longer used as a post office, but it was for a while, translated from the works of Herodotus reads, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Maybe you've seen that if you've been to New York and you've seen the post office. Well, or the post office building. The original sentence, according to the Postal Service, referenced the expedition of the Greeks against the Persians around 500 B.C., remarking specifically on the dedication with which the Persians continued their system of mounted postal couriers during that time. So that's where that comes from. They were world-renowned for their postal service. Boy, we could learn a few things, right? Maybe we should speak to the Persians about that although I might be a little bit hesitant to open that package. Nothing against Persians. Anyway, I'm sure I'll offend somebody. He ordered the nobles and the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews on a single day. But doesn't that sound familiar? That was the command that God gave to the Jews to destroy the Amalekites. Men, women, children. Not necessarily on a single day, but... You see what's happening here? Haman is retaliating for generations of hatred between these two peoples. So you might say he's a madman. Not so much. Yes, he's satanically inspired, but his motivation is revenge. It's vengeance. Satan can do good work with people, bad work really, but he can do his best work with people who are filled with vengeance and want to inflict revenge. Those are the types of people that are ripe for the picking. When Satan gets a hold of somebody that is blinded by vengeance, all kinds of things happen. Now, we know Adolf Hitler had some issue with the Jewish people. Satan exploited that. 
But there was something within his psyche that caused him to hate the Jewish people. I've read all kinds of things, but that's not the important point. The important point is that when someone allows hatred toward another group of people, whether it's someone's skin color or race or religion, whatever it is, the devil can get a hold of that person and do all types of evil through them. This is why we shouldn't be partial toward one group of people or another. We shouldn't have bias or prejudice toward someone just because of how they look. You know, or, or their ancestry, their skin color. No, not at all. But when you allow that kind of hate in your heart, the devil takes up residence in your heart. We've seen what the devil can do on all sides through hate. Be very careful when you find yourself disliking or despising a group of people for no good reason. I'm not talking about you have a problem with people because of what they believe necessarily although we should love even our enemies. But when you just look at somebody and you don't like them because their skin is lighter than you or darker than you, or they speak a different language and they were born in a different country, check that at the door. That's satanic. That is hate that the devil can exploit and destroy you in the process. Now you might be saying, well, wait a minute, the Jews hated the Amalekites. Understand that they were the victims of these terrorist you know, human traffickers, and God told them to destroy them as a people. So that's a little different. That's a little different. But the Amalekites were wicked people. And I'm not even going to get into all of their wickedness. There was just a lot of things uh, that God looked at and said, well, these people need to be put down and destroyed. So this edict legalized the genocidal ambitions of an Amalekite under a divine death sentence, for God had declared that all the Amalekites should be destroyed. They were to kill young, old women, little children, all on the 13th of the 12th month of Adar. Uh, They were to seize the Jews' personal property as they had been prosperous in Persia. Uh, The Jews had wandered a lot throughout the centuries, and they tend to be prosperous as a people wherever they go. They're gifted in many ways, in business especially. And a lot of times the people they live among are jealous when they're successful. We've only seen this like a hundred times in the last you know, several hundred years. I mean, it happens over and over again, whether it's Russia or the Ashkenazi in Europe or the Sephardim in Spain. It seems to happen over and over again. And it's sad, but it reminds us of the ambitions of the Third Reich during World War II. They saw the Jews were wealthy. They needed the money. So they passed laws that allowed them to just take everything the Jews had. They did it legally on the night of broken glass. They just went in and legally plundered the Jews. The plunder during the Holocaust. They're still finding like works of art and gold and different things that were plundered uh, in Europe during World War II. They're still tracking down some of these things and returning them to their, the families that, uh, to which they belong. But it, it's really sad and it's not hard to understand how these things happen as we've already seen. So Haman issued the text of this edict as law throughout Persia to prepare the people for that day. The issue was, uh, the edict was issued in every province of the citadel of, and in the citadel of Susa, the capital. And then you see Xerxes and Haman, they sit down to drink while the city of Susa is confused by the edict. What on earth is going on? Callous to human suffering and the destruction of an entire people. You know, Susa was as bewildered as the Allied powers were during World War II. They couldn't understand, like... The Allied powers, France and, and uh, the United States and the UK, they couldn't understand. 
When they heard about things like concentration camps, they, they couldn't understand why the Germans would, would or the Axis powers would, would fund that. Why would, they, why would they bother? It didn't make any sense. They were bewildered by it, but we know it happened. Although there's some lunatics today that deny it happened. I can't understand how anybody could think that way. But think about that. This is, this is like a, a theme that seems to repeat itself over and over again. Same devil. So it doesn't surprise me. If German, Polish, and Slavic Jews were destroyed completely, and many of them were killed, but if they were completely destroyed, there would be no Israel today. Think about that. I think when that happened, uh, you know, a little, a little less than 100 years ago, Satan's time was growing short in the early 1940s. He knew it. May 14, 1948 would be the establishment of the Zionist state of Israel. And thankfully, the satanic plot was thwarted as well. Will it happen again? Well, if you come on Sundays, you know that we're studying through the book of Revelation. And we're going to see it, and we've already seen it through our studies. In the last days, the exact same thing is going to happen, only in a more severe way. Well, brothers and sisters, now is the time for us to obey God's command to destroy our sinful nature. Look what happened to the Jews because they didn't destroy the Amalekites. The symbolism here, it it can't be lost on us because this is the practical take-home, you know. This this is what you take home with you and digest. Imagine if in 600 years our descendants had to pay the price for our rebellion. Imagine. If Israel had not rejected Jesus, their Messiah, there would have been no Holocaust. How could you say that, Pastor Tim? Because it's true. If we disobey God's commands to destroy the flesh, we only allow our enemy to attack us in the future. Why would you do that? Why would you spare the flesh knowing the flesh will only destroy you in the future? Don't spare the flesh. We need more than ever to take seriously God's command to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Very interesting, but at the same time, very powerful lesson and teaching. We need to take seriously these things. We need to walk in the Spirit and put to death the things of the flesh in our lives. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to obey you and to live for you, to follow you, to obey your word, that we might glorify you with our lives and be blessed in this life and destroy and defeat our enemies, Lord, as we obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.